Welcome to day 134 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Judges chapters 18 and 19, and then John chapter 8 verses 12 through 30. All right, so beginning in Judges chapter 18, we're once again told in those days there was no king in Israel, and uh, it is abbreviated here. That is the second part of the phrase that we have already seen. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the stories that we see today are certainly examples of that. So uh, this is actually the middle of the story about Micah and his household. Of course, Micah, as we saw yesterday, is is a man from the hill country of Ephraim who initially had stolen a lot of money from his mother. I should note that this family appears to be pretty wealthy Okay, 1,100 uh, pieces of silver is not the type of uh, is not the type of uh, petty cash that Israelite families would have typically had sitting around. Um, but at any rate, uh, he returns it to his mom, and then his mom donates uh, 200 pieces of that stash to the Lord. And what Micah then goes and does is he makes an idolatrous shrine in his house. And he entices a Levite who was sojourning in the area to serve as his own household priest. So there's all kinds of deviant worship going on there. And now we learn that uh, there are uh, five spies from the tribe of Dan who have come to seek out um, additional territory to what they had received. Back in chapter 1, of all the tribes that had difficulty gaining a foothold in the land, we see that Dan... Uh, perhaps has the hardest time. In verse 34, it says that the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down into the plain. So they're having a lot of difficulty, and as a result, they're seeking other places. And they're, they're, they've come pretty far north um, from the cities of Zorah and Eshtaol, which uh, were associated with the Samson narrative, of course. And they're exploring for a place that they might call their own for additional territory. And so they lodge at the house of Micah on their way there, and they hear the voice of the Levite whom Micah has hired, and they recognize him. And they ask him, you know, who brought you here? What is your business? What are you doing here? And they find out, and they're like, well, okay, well, you're a Levite. Why don't you inquire of Yahweh and see if we're going to be successful on what we're doing, the journey in which we are on? And He says to him, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of Yahweh, which is, uh, first of all, uh, not sure if this Levite is actually the guy whom you want to be inquiring by. Uh, But notice also that this is, uh, that the, the answer they give is, that he gives is kind of vague and open to interpretation, right? The, The journey on which you go under is under the eye of Yahweh. So it's basically just God is watching you. It isn't go, you're going to succeed in this. This is going to be awesome or God's going to give you victory or something like that, right? It's just that God's watching you and what you do. Um, so they come to the city of Laish, which is uh, even further north. And they and Laish is described as a city where uh, that is wealthy, that dwells in security, and yet it's also isolated. Uh, it is... Um, they, uh, it, it, if 
if only it could come under the protection from Sidon, is basically the idea. Sidon being a prominent Phoenician city, um, which is also very wealthy, uh, but Laish would need their pr protection, but it's too far, so it's kind of vulnerable. So they report back to the other people in their tribe, and they say, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good, and will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So the uh, the, the tribe of Dan then sends 600 men to conquer this city. Uh, on their way up, we're told that they they encamped at Kiryat Yearim, um, and as a result, the name of the place where they actually camped becomes known as Machana Dan, uh, meaning Camp of Dan. And as they're going up through the country of Ephraim, uh, they they come to the, the house of Micah. And the, the five men who had come are like, hey, do you not know that inside this guy's house is an ephod, some teraphim, some household idols, as well as a carved image and a metal image. In other words, this guy's got some, got a pretty nice shrine in there, and uh, wouldn't it be nice if we just uh, acquired that for ourselves. And so, uh, the five men who had initially come, they they go back they go back to Micah's house uh, to inquire about his welfare, and it tells us that there are six hundred men standing at the gate. Six, the six hundred men who had come from from Dan are. are uh, at the gate, and you could just imagine what that must have been like <clears throat> to be in that house. Um, and they just go and they take, they help themselves to the idolatrous shrine and all of its implements. And <clears throat> the priest sort of kind of tries to stomp them. He's like, what are you doing? And they're like, hey, keep quiet. Um, why don't you come and be a father and a priest to us? That's the same offer that Micah had made to them. Um, isn't it better to be a priest to an entire tribe than just to a family. And this sounds like a pretty good deal to him. So he goes and he joins them. And Micah does send out uh, some some men from his house. Again, note that Micah is pretty wealthy. He can do this. He has sufficient people in his house to do this. So he goes and he over, they overtake him, but they're obviously no match for a force of 600 men. And so they're turned back. Then the tribe of Dan comes upon Laish, which again we're reminded is quiet and unsuspecting, and they strike the city with the edge of the sword. They burn it with fire, and um, and um, no one does come and help them uh, because again they are far from Sidon. They then rebuild it and call it Dan. They set up the carved image there, and we're told that about the di the kind of priestly dynasty then that results of uh, from their bringing this priest to them, uh, who is uh, apparently called here Jonathan, son of Gershon, son of Moses. Um, and uh, they are there until the captivity of the land. He, he serves there until the captivity of the land. Um, obviously, a note that comes from a much later point in Israel's history. Of course, it's very difficult to tell when Judges is actually composed, but note at least this part is um, something that is reflected back upon after the captivity, and the, this is, is a northern city, so 
uh, at the very minimum, this would have been after 722 BC, which is when the northern kingdom of Israel is eventually taken into exile by Assyria. And the story ends with saying that they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So there's a there's a distance uh, where you'd have to go to go to the actual tabernacle. So they're like, well, why, why can't we just have our own? Um, a couple things to note here. Uh, we will see when we get to the books of Kings that Dan becomes uh, kind of known for uh, being a place of deviant worship of Yahweh. Um, it, it is one of the two shrines, the other one being in Bethel, that the first king of the northern kingdom sets up so that the people don't have to go to Jerusalem because they're no longer part of, of, of that kingdom. Um, the other one being at Bethel. And so Dan is, it becomes known for, uh, for idolatrous worship, for worship that, that breaks the second commandment. Also, probably is worth noting that the way in which they acquire this city also appears to be, um, this isn't something good, right? The, they, the way in which the land distribution happened was each tribe was given their land and the Lord would help them to drive out the inhabitants of it. And here they are kind of just going and uh, just taking whatever land anywhere that they see fit. And that doesn't seem to be in line with how God had set things up to go under Joshua. But we are reminded, as we get into chapter 19, that in those days there was no king in Israel. And again, that second part of the phrase is elided, but you're to probably, you know, fill it in, the readers to fill it in. And, and, and so it's almost emphasized by the fact that it's elided, by the fact that it's not there. Um, you just read it. There was no king in Israel. And you're supposed to say, that's right, because everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And we're told of another Levite who is sojourning uh, in the remote parts of Ephraim. And, um, and he takes a concubine uh, from Bethlehem in Judah. And the concubine is unfaithful to him. She cheats on him and ends up in her back, in, back in her father's house. But this Levite is not done with this relationship and, and would like her back. And so he goes after her after four months and he goes to speak kindly of her to bring her back into his household and the father-in-law is very happy to have him there um they they are there for three days uh eating and spending the night there and then he convinces him to stay a fourth night and he tries to get him to stay a fifth but they're they, they take off and uh, there's a little bit of a sense of foreboding here, right? That that they're being delayed on their journey. Why is, is something bad awaiting them? Especially at this point in the book of Judges where nothing seems to be going well for, for any of the characters. Uh, so they depart um, and they entertain the possibility of staying in um, uh, near Jebus, which is also another name given to Jerusalem. Jebus being where the term Jebusite comes from, Jebusites being the ones who dwelt in and around Jerusalem, uh, the Canaanites, that is. Um, Joshua 15.63 noted that they were unable to take that city. Uh, I talked about how Jerusalem is um, um, notoriously a difficult city to hold, um, apparently, for the Israelites when they're first coming into the land. Um, so <clears throat> they, they're like, but they're like, well, that, that's a Canaanite place. Let's go on to Gibeah. Let's stay in a good Israelite city. Gibeah, of course, being a Benjaminite 
city. And so they go in, and they're in the open square, and no one takes them in. And at uh, and one starts to think, uh, this kind of sounds a little bit familiar. Um, where else have we seen a story of people staying in an open s- square um, in the in this strange city, a city that's not theirs? And um, an old man is coming in, apparently from working, and he meets them, and he's like, "Where are you going? Where Where have you come from?" And uh, they tell him, uh, we're, we're going to the house of Yahweh, which is at this point, again, at, at Shiloh. And no one's taken us in. And so the, the old man is like, well, peace to you. Just don't spend the night in the square. Again, you're like, mm, this sounds a little bit familiar. And so he brings them into his house. The old man does, feeds their donkeys, washes their feet, and they eat and they drink. And then worthless fellows come and surround the house. And the familiarity now is quite obvious. And they demand, bring out the man who came to you. Um, They want to, of course, have sexual relations with him. And at this point, we're like, wait, am I reading the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Right? It's it's strikingly similar. And the the old man, just like Lot did, says, no, brothers. Uh, but I've got my virgin daughter in here, and I've got this guy's concubine. And But the men persist, and um, eventually they end up, um, in, in this confusion, uh, they end up sending out the concubine to them, and um, and the, the men, it says, knew her and abused her all night uh, until she falls at the door, um, unable to get up in the morning. This obviously a terrible, terrible scene. And note how here, yes, it was very similar to the story about Sodom, but here uh, one of the visitors actually did go out as opposed to the men um, being turned away. Uh, Remember with the, the angels sent from the Lord, they struck the men with blindness and everything. And the point being here that, um, that this this Israelite city, Benjamin, this Benjaminite city, uh, Gibeah, Gibeah, is now worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, and then the Levite, who up till now has seemed to be a, a pretty good guy, seems to have this extremely cold response, right? He opens up the door in the morning, he sees her lying there, and he's like, get up, let us be going. And as if she hadn't just had the worst night that anybody could imagine. Okay, this is just this despicable, disgusting scene, right? Where um, all he can do is put her on a donkey and she apparently dies. It's unclear though whether she's, she's dead by the time she reaches the, you know, she's dead lying at the door or whether she dies on the journey. But when he gets back to his place... This uh, Levite is furious, and he divides her body up into 12 pieces and sends it throughout the territories of Israel, apparently with some kind of message about what had happened. And the people of the other tribes see this. It says, all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider take counsel and speak. So what are we going to do about this terrible, terrible thing that has been done by the Benjaminites? 
Okay, well, we're going to see what they're going to do tomorrow. But for now, let's go ahead and turn to um, a much more encouraging part of Scripture. Um, uh, just to remind you that, you know, Judges, sometimes this story in Judges is remarked upon as if, like, oh, that's in the Bible. Uh, you know, how could you read the Bible that it's got stuff like that in it? Well, it's telling us what society devolves into when everyone ignores the Lord, he does not reign as king, and simply does what is right in their own eyes. It's it's supposed to be showing us uh, something terrible. It's supposed to be showing us uh, how bad things get, and this is an illustration for just how bad things get. Okay, so John chapter 8. Jesus is in Jerusalem here, and he's still at, the, at uh, Sukkot, which is the Feast of Booths. And uh, during the Feast of Booths, uh, there is uh, a big component of how it was celebrated that, uh, that involved light. And I'm just going to quote a, par- a brief paragraph here from D.A. Carson's commentary on the Gospel of John. Um, uh, quote, uh, and this is, this is uh, from the source he's citing, which is the Mishnah, a Jewish writing on Sukkah, on, on the Feast of Booths. He who has not seen the joy of the place of water drawing has never in his life seen joy. Note that I, I mentioned the other day um, with where, where he talks about uh, water, right? That this is, um, that that was another part of the uh, Feast of Booths where they would draw water and bring it towards, um, to, the, to the holy place. Um, Carson then says, This extravagant claim stands just before the description of the lighting of the four huge lamps in the temple's court of women and of the exuberant celebration that took place under their light. Men of piety and good works, which is what uh, the Mishnah calls them, danced through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. The Levitical orchestras cut loose, and some sources attest that this went on every night of the Feast of Tabernacles with the light from the temple's area shedding its glow all over Jerusalem. In this context, Jesus declares to the people, I am the light of the world. Indeed, that is what he declares. Okay, done quoting Carson there. Um, Let's see what happens. So, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, This is... Uh, in line with what we saw in the introduction to John's Gospel, where one of the first things that is said about the the Word, Jesus, is in him was life, <clears throat> and the life was the light of men. Uh, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness um, has not overcome it. Um, so this is, this is what Jesus is saying of himself now. And the Pharisees say to him, uh, Hey, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Apparently, they're actually referencing um, something that Jesus said in the aftermath of the controversy of the healing of the lame man um, back in chapter 5. Because in verse 31, one thing that Jesus says to them is, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And so they kind of try to uh, ensnare him in this, right? Hey, you said if you bear witness about yourself, your testimony is not true. And they're like, there's only one person talking here, Jesus. Um, your testimony must not be true, right? 
and the rest of what Jesus says in our text for this morning is essentially an answer to that question, um, because they've they've missed his point, right? His point is not that if I'm physically speaking, I'm the only one bearing witness. No, that's basically ignoring everything else that Jesus has said, because his his whole point is that I only speak what the Father gives me to speak. I only do what the Father gives me to do. So if you understand who I am, uh, and as John, as he would say at this point in John, where I am, who, who it is who has sent me, uh, what I am doing, you would realize that every time I open my mouth, I'm not simply speaking speaking uh, about, my, uh, about myself. It's not just me speaking, but it's the Father speaking through me. Jesus is the the perfect messenger of God. Remember, John's gospel introduces him as what? The Word, as God himself speaking. Um, and so, um, and so, even if I do speak by myself, Jesus says, right, if, even if I am bearing witness about myself, okay, um, my testimony is true. And why? Because I know where I came from and where I am going, okay? that So, be, because I because I know the truth about me, um, this truth that you guys have chosen to ignore, um, I can I can speak, and it's not just me speaking because I'm speaking on the Father's authority. Um, and then he he focuses a little bit on how how they are are missing all this. Um, you do not know where I come from or where I am going, so I know you don't know. Um, you are judging me according to the flesh. But I judge no one. Now, what does that mean, right? Because we have seen in the Gospel of John uh, this idea that Jesus, that one of Jesus' function is as a judge. So, in chapter 5 and verse 22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Sure sounds like the Son is going to judge, right? Uh, and then later, uh, just in, that ne- in the next paragraph following that, um, as the Father has life in himself, he's granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And then he talks about how the hour is coming when those who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man and be raised, some to eternal life and others to judgment. And then even here, notice he says, I, I judge no one, Okay, and that's the, the phrase in question here. And then in the very next verse, he says, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. Okay, because it's not I alone who judge, but the who judges, but the but the one who's but I am the one who sent me. So what does Jesus mean by saying I don't judge? Um, well, I think he's simply saying, I don't judge anyone in this way. Okay, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one according to the flesh. Uh, but when I do judge, okay, it's it's not I alone who am judging, but again, I am the Father who sent me. Because, again, everything that Jesus does, including his judgments, are according to the will of the Father. And so, um, in your law, and the law that you guys know, he says, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. And here, now, when you hear me, Jesus says, Uh, you are hearing not just one, but two, because it is the Father. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And in characteristic fashion in the Gospel of John, they understand this spiritual statement in 
in a woodenly, literal, earthly way. Okay, where is your father? Like, let, let, well, let's talk to your father and see what he has to say. And Jesus answers, you don't know me and you don't know my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Notice that, that the way to know God is through Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, then you don't know God. Um, and it, John then notes that even though he's talking in the temple treasury as he's saying these things, um, so he's in harm's way, no one arrested him, um, not because uh, they stunk at it or not because anybody was being clever, but simply because his hour had not yet come. So the Lord had not, uh, the Father had not yet uh, appointed the time when Jesus would be taken. Uh, but here, just like in the synoptics, remember when Jesus predicts what's going to happen to him, here um, uh, they, we're told this, um, we're given this foreshadowing in different ways. And it's, it's all about his hour having not yet come. Um, notice this, Jesus had said this to his brothers earlier on, my hour has not yet come. And now we have John the narrator telling us this. And then Jesus keeps speaking to them. I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And again, once again, very woodenly, woodenly literally like, well, how's he going to get out of get get away? Is he going to kill himself, right, rather than us do it? Um, when he says, "Where I'm going, you cannot come." Now, this is a weird response from them because you would think that of all the things that Jesus just said, it would be the "You will die in your sin." Okay, this is the, obviously a frightening aspect to die in your sin and to be subject to the judgment of God. And here, Jesus just said this of them, and what they want to latch on to is the "Where I'm going" part. And, um, and so Jesus says to them, you are, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you, you would die in your sin, right? So he refocuses them, them on that, the thing that all of us should be f focused on. Am I going to die in my sin? I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So what is it that delivers us from that? Belief in Jesus. And so they say to him, well, who are you? You want us to believe in who, in, that you are he. Who are you then? And Jesus tells them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Again, he's back at this point where the things that he says are things that perfectly reflect the mind and the will of the Father and, and the things that he says about himself. Now, he's evading their question, right? They say, who are you? And he doesn't answer them. Instead, he's like, before, before I'm even going to tell you, before you're even ready to hear, you have to realize that I'm just not some other guy speaking to you. Okay? So I'm not, I'm not even going to tell you until you acknowledge, until you realize the authority with which I am speaking. And it says they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. And so Jesus says to them again, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, again, this foreboding sense of what will eventually happen to Jesus. Note also how in his conversation with Nicodemus back in chapter 3, he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that all who believe in him might have eternal life. So here is this looking forward when you have when you have lifted up the son of man 
and lifted up, I noted then, has these two, uh, this kind of double meaning, right? The idea of lifted up in the sense of made much of, glorified, but also literally lifted up on the cross. And John's point is that you don't choose between those. They are one and the same. Um, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Here Jesus is kind of compressing every, like now and then everything that happens after the cross, right? The, like um, uh, how it will, it's not as if everybody that he's talking to is going to realize on the moment of his crucifixion that he, that who he is, but it is um, after following that, that they will eventually come to realize Um, who Jesus is and whose authority indeed he speaks on. And he who sent me is with me, he says. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You see how focused Jesus' words in this gospel so far are on how in line with the Father's will he is, how what he says we need to hear as coming from the Father. Um, This, of course, in the gospel that introduces him as the word become flesh. All right. Well, that's it for today. As always, I thank you for joining me. And uh, until tomorrow, keep reading scripture. Take care and bye-bye.